It's Friday, March 22nd, and from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. There are places in Pennsylvania and in every state where saying the words climate change out loud is just about enough to get you tarred and feathered and run out of town on a rail. Tora Johnson learned that lesson the hard way when the state of Maine updated its shoreline zoning laws a few years back. Johnson's a geographer with the University of Maine, and her job was to help small coastal communities navigate the new regulations. Many of those communities were looking at extremely onerous compliance costs as a result of the changes, and when residents found out it was all in the name of fighting climate change, well, that didn't go over too well. People had their tires slashed. A colleague of mine who was a planner who was just helping communities try to figure out how to comply was called a terrorist. And this kind of thing was, it was, it was just out of control. That's what you call a tough room. And yet, just a few years later, the tone of conversation in many of these communities has changed dramatically. So how did they do it? How did Dr. Johnson and her team convince these communities to take climate seriously? Answer, by reframing the issue in terms of direct impacts on those communities, essentially talking about everything but climate. We didn't do it by saying, this is a climate change thing, and you need to adapt your energy use about climate change. We said, boy, it sure costs a lot, and by the way, it's not great for the climate. And that's how we've gained traction. Dr. Johnson shared her story last month in State College as keynote speaker at the 2019 Pennsylvania Statewide Conference for Watershed Organizations. We'll get her advice for engaging people on conservation issues in politically polarized times coming up. But first, let's hear a few more voices from this year's Watershed Connections Conference. I'm Keith Williams I'm with the North Bay Education Foundation. And what kind of work do you do? Um, outdoor education. So I run a, a large outdoor education nonprofit, and I also run uh, river snorkeling trips. And so I'm kind of here on uh, double duty. So you did the snorkeling presentation everybody's talking about. It. I'm oh. sorry I missed that. I'm glad people are talking about it. Yeah, yeah I did the, uh, did the snorkeling presentation. Love doing them. So I, I guess you came to share knowledge, but are you, are you picking anything up? Are you learning? Oh, yeah, I'm definitely gaining. Um, every session I've been to has been something I can apply to my work with the Lower Susquehanna Riverkeeper, but also my work with the North Bay Education Foundation. So um, everything from communication strategies to effective use of video um, to uh, constituent building. Yeah, definitely. Uh, anything you would like to see next time around? Wow, more time. <laughs> I always say that. Yeah, yeah. Right. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks. My name is Kathleen Connolly. I am the Master Watershed Steward uh, Coordinator at Penn State Extension Bucks County. So uh, you guys are a sponsor of this event? Yes. We were involved in the planning as well. So I was on the planning committee for the conference. What are you getting out of this so far? Any, any interesting takeaways? Absolutely. So the volunteers in Bucks County uh, do a lot of projects. And there are topics that cover those kinds of projects that they're doing, such as planting riparian buffers. And, for instance, I just went to a session about maintaining riparian buffer plantings. And now I can pass that information along to the volunteers about the research that's been done to keep the trees alive. Where do you see this going in the future? Is there anything you'd like to see uh, for the next gathering? I would like to see curtains on the windows in the rooms. (laughs) (laughs) But I'd like to see this get larger 
and invite maybe some EAC members from around the state and specific large watershed association presidents or you know, leadership volunteers. So you, I mean, you see the value as being mostly for the, the smaller kind of grassroots level, the EICs and such? I think since they're doing a lot of the work in the municipalities as volunteers, they're going to benefit from having direct knowledge of how to handle these projects. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Jeffrey Selling. I volunteer with uh, the Tukanita Coney Frankfurt Watershed Partnership, also known as TTF, and I'm a master watershed steward. So uh, what brought you to the conference? What were you hoping to get out of it? Uh, well, it, it goes back into my background. I'm a was an elementary school science teacher. I've retired, and I have been volunteering with TTF since I retired, and I just wanted to learn more. I, I volunteer every week with TTF for a full day, and uh, so I thought I could learn more and also be part, more part of the community. Since I've retired, I, since I work outside by myself a lot, I'm not as much around like-minded people as I was when I was in my school. So now I'm uh, come to this, I'm meeting a lot of like-minded people, which is great. Were you at the, the previous conference two years ago? No, no, this is my first one, although I think I will continue to come. How did you find out about it? Um, it was announced by our Master Watershed Steward Coordinator for uh, Montgomery County, Aaron Kinley, and uh, I also think I just saw it on a number of announcements, websites. What have you learned? Any any really interesting takeaways for you? So many. I'm not sure I can process them all, but the one that was last, which I think is the most important for me and what I'm doing, was the presentation by Stroud on how to maintain uh, riparian buffers. They have a lot of research. They've done so many of them. And since most of my work is spent working with buffers, fixing the deer fences, fixing the trees, cutting down vines, and I'm not sure that all the work we're doing is as well informed as it should be, and I learned a lot of very specific techniques and strategies that uh, I hope to take back to TTF. Uh, Anything in particular you'd like to see or see differently next time around? Um, Perhaps uh, interest groups where uh, people who had, and they they had this at breakfast this morning, but it didn't seem to really take off, where uh, people involved with various projects in common could get together and kind of talk about it. It seems like breakfast isn't always the best time for that. (laughs) Most people weren't awake or were just talking about other things. Yeah, after a couple cups of coffee. Yeah, exactly. Well, thanks so much for your time. Sure. Thank you. My name is Erin Landis, and um, I actually work at the Watershed Institute in New Jersey, but I'm also part of um, the Ambler Environmental Advisory Council, and that's in Pennsylvania. So what kind of environmental issues are you looking at with the EIC? Flooding is a thing in Ambler? That's a big deal? Yeah, and we just got a really big grant to address um, stormwater management. And that's an issue because of the MS4 permits. It's an issue that our council is concerned about, our local municipal um, government officials, but also um, the community really gets engaged in because of flooding issues and things like that. So that is our big thing right now. We also participate in Tree Vitalize. We have um, someone in Ambler that's really passionate about it, and she plants like 30 to 50 trees twice a year. 
and gets residents to buy them and plant them um, at their home. So we do a lot of that as well. Yeah. What brought you here? Were you at the last conference? I wasn't. In the last two years, I've gotten like way more involved in my community, and I am very interested in watershed health. So that's why I came out. So what have you made of it so far? What do you think? It's been great. Yeah, I loved the keynote speaker. She was great. For me, a lot of this is about connecting science to reality, to how you can apply it, you know, in day-to-day life and how these community organizations can apply it. So connecting the research to that. The keynote speaker did address sort of the political time period that we're in, which I think um, matters a lot in these environmental discussions, um, because a lot of times I feel like our organizations can preach to the choir a little bit and aren't reaching new audiences, which we really need to do is engage more people, you know? Well, thanks for talking with me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. One of the highlights of this year's conference was the return of Shark Tank Funders Edition, where contestants present mock project pitches to a panel of major grantmakers. Brandon Deal with the Foundation for Pennsylvania Watersheds was one of our four sharks. So it was actually my idea to sort of put the Shark Tank together for last year's event, and certainly I was happy to see that it was well-received and that we were going to do it again this year. I think that oftentimes getting information out to people about grant writing is boring. So we were kind of looking for a new way to share information, make it a little more interactive and a little more lively, and thus the Shark Tank was born. I really think that we're starting to move towards uh, a more comprehensive approach to dealing with watershed issues. And certainly we're not just fixing problems in the environment. And I think all three of the pitches tonight really talked about fixing the environment and how people have a connection to the environment and how we can fix some of the, the wounds of, of people as well by fixing the environment. And I think that's really neat to, to see that transition taking place because oftentimes we've restored the environment and we've not necessarily thought about how people fit into that restoration as well. At the, at the foundation, certainly uh, we get some good pitches, uh, we get some mediocre ones, and we get some other ones where fortunately we're able to help in, in developing those proposals and, and make them a little bit better than they would have been otherwise, unlike some other agencies and, and funders that don't necessarily have the capability of staff time to reach out and help people develop proposals. That's kind of one of the uh, tasks that the board has for us is to, to reach out and to provide some level of technical assistance as well as funding for our grantees. People tend to not understand the, the value of telling a complete story. Uh, oftentimes people will leave details out or people will, uh, they've sold a pitch so many times but they've never really given a pitch to somebody other than themselves or somebody within their organization and it becomes a little bit difficult because they're familiar with their their project so I think that's a common thread. Another common thread is that uh, once you get the money the job's not over with. It's really about telling the story of what you did with that money and developing that funding relationship that encourages funders and others to continue to buy into your organization and, and provide your support. And some people think that uh, maybe they're just a little too humble to, to brag, but certainly whenever you're providing a report back to to funders about what you did with their money, it's very important to to brag and convince them that you did what you were supposed to with that money and that you're a good investment. Uh, I like to make the analogy that it's kind of like 
uh, putting yourself on Match.com or your first day at the Combine for the NFL football draft. You want to put your best foot forward and uh, make sure that somebody's paying attention to you. And you do that by telling a good story and then following up and being um, above and beyond the call of duty with the reporting. For more advice from our funding sharks on how to craft the perfect pitch, you'll want to check out the video on the Peck website at peckpa.org. You'll find it on the homepage or alternately in the video room section of the site. Dr. Tora Johnson is Associate Professor of Geographic Information at the University of Maine. Her keynote talk at this year's Watersheds Conference was all about how to win over hostile audiences by appealing to their sense of dignity something we all want, regardless of how we look at the world. And it can be a way to change how we look at the world. I asked Dr. Johnson to explain what she means by dignity and how that concept relates to environmental and conservation work. She said it comes down to making people feel seen. You are recognized for who you are. Your vulnerability and your value as a human being is recognized and is part of whatever process or interaction you're having with people uh, might be. And dignity can be uh, supported or harmed by interactions between people or by the ways in which you've lived your life, right? The slings and arrows of life can also harm your dignity or support your dignity. And you carry that with you in all your interactions, even when you're sitting in a meeting about, you know, whether to put in a noose whale, right? That dignity framework that you carry with you is there. And people behave based on how dignified their environment is and how they feel their dignity is being respected or not. Okay, so how does that translate to then working with maybe rural communities uh, who are are dealing with complicated watershed issues in a polarized uh, situation. Yeah. So in Down East Maine, we work with a lot of um, communities that are grappling with really difficult questions in an environment where they have extremely limited resources. And and also, we've got a really diverse, you know, set of ideologies and and we're dealing with endemic poverty as well, opioid addiction, a lot of upheaval in natural resources, uh, dependent industries. So we see this kind of conflict a lot where, you know, on the one hand, environmental groups or the environmental agencies in the state want to impose regulations and folks locally, you know, don't. And battles ensue. And those battles are wasteful and difficult, and they don't move anyone forward, right? They're harmful to everyone. And one of the worst parts about that is that the whole environment becomes undignified. It's well known that when we're treated poorly, we respond poorly, right? And so the dignity-centered approaches to environmental decision-making take into consideration moving the process in a direction that recognizes the dignity of everyone and recognizes that priorities and the and the sort of experience and understanding that um, each individual brings is going to be different and reframing and, and refocusing on priorities that are shared and on allowing time for listening and feedback and reframing how you define problems, how you define a solution and allowing that to move you forward. 
So, like, what's an example of a problem that you could focus on to make that click in, in people's minds? Sure, that's a great question. I have dozens of them. Probably it's uh, the simplest one that I can explain was it's a project that won't die. It's been going on since I think we took it up first in 2007 or 8, which is the Shoreland Zoning Law in Maine was reauthorized and changed. And the Department of Environmental Protection put out a series of regulations. They're largely unworkable. They remain pretty unworkable, and, and we're still working on that. But that produced what we call devil shift, a sudden emergent polarization and a lot of vitriol, in, especially in the region where I work in down east Maine. People had their tires slashed. A colleague of mine who was a planner who was just helping communities try to figure out how to comply was called a terrorist. And this kind of thing was it, was, it was just out of control. And one of the worst outcomes here was that a lot of the communities were getting ready to sue the state. And there had already been uh, a couple outside of the region, a couple of communities that had sued the state and lost, and lost thousands of dollars in the process. And these are communities that don't have thousands of dollars to lose. So I worked with the local regional planning organization to create a mapping process that allowed the communities to make their own maps. Essentially, we provided the legwork and some basic mapping tools and and an iterative process where we went between the towns and the state and, and helped them create their own shoreland zoning maps. Because, you know, it turned out when we started talking with people and listening and listening to their own local knowledge and recognizing their expertise and and so on, we found that they knew a lot about their resources. They actually cared about them, but they didn't want a state-imposed map telling them that, for instance, a a recharge pond behind a, a wastewater treatment plant was a wetland, right? And so they needed to have some traction there to be able to modify their maps, make their maps, you know, make sensible requests for variances and and that sort of thing. And so by creating that process where we recognized and and acknowledged their expertise and provided them with tools that they could make their own maps, we had only one town sued. They lost, and then they came to us and said, can you make us a map now? (laughs) Better late than never. Yeah, exactly. It was really fascinating to hear you talk about by starting from this place of dignity and then reframing and, and putting the emphasis on actually local impacts and the ways yeah. that these issues touch on people's lives you were able to transform these communities where you know like the words climate change were verboten right yeah, yeah into communities that are really dynamically engaged in dealing with the impacts but just not really maybe thinking about it that way yeah yeah initially you know we had partners who who fled for the hills because they didn't want to be involved with anything that had the label climate change and we never really shed that word you know we kept using it but we focused our efforts on local priorities specifically and we asked what are your priorities relative to these issues and what kind of maps do you need what kinds of information do you need you know what technical experts should we bring in and then we started responding we were accountable to folks you know, concerns. And when we started doing that, then we started to hear people use the words climate change and make take action to adapt and then eventually take action to mitigate. You know, 10 years ago, we thought this was going to be a decades-long 
effort. And here we are at the end of this decade, and we've, you know, we're in a really different place. So you've, you've got the momentum now on the, the mitigation side, and people are able to understand impacts and are motivated to deal with them. Is there a way that the same approach or a similar approach might work on the the other side of, like, can we prevent these worst impacts from happening? You know, there's this push in Congress for a Green New Deal. It's not yeah. an environmental bill. It's a jobs bill, right? Yeah. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I have a lot to say about the Green New Deal. On the one hand... The approach that it's an economic problem is absolutely the right answer because that's true, and that's where we've that's where we've started in uh, down East Maine is where we finally got some traction on energy related stuff. The big thing has been housing and and heating, home heating, um, which is a huge debacle basically in down east maine we have an aging aging um, housing stock elderly people on fixed incomes you know uh, generational poverty so approaching it that way supporting energy efficiency programs that help poor people upgrade their homes and mentioning on the side climate change that's how we've gained traction everything from measuring commute times which in a rural area, you'd be surprised how far people end up commuting and thinking about how we can make our service centers more livable and walkable so that it attracts people to settle. And, and you know, I can't say that I or even that specific project takes credit for this, but um, a couple of the communities that we've worked with are now specifically looking at their communities in that way, saying we want people to live in town especially the elderly people. How do we make that work? And that's a very efficient way of operating. But we didn't do it by saying, this is a climate change thing, and you need to adapt your energy use about climate change. We said, boy, it sure costs a lot, and by the way, it's not great for the climate. And that's how we've gained traction. And there are so many opportunities and angles in climate-related work that you can go at it that way. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been great. A little taste of the keynote presentation by Dr. Tora Johnson at this year's statewide conference for watershed organizations held last month in State College. We'll have the full presentation available to view online on our website, along with lots more content from the conference. Look for that in the watershed section of the PEC website in the weeks ahead. We are updating the page continuously with the goal of eventually uh, making all of the information or nearly all of it presented at the conference available to download as a PDF file. You'll find that, again, on the Watershed section of the PEC website. While you're there, check out the latest on our deep decarbonization and other energy policy work, upcoming events around the state, staff news, grant opportunities, and more, including 93 episodes of the Pennsylvania Legacies podcast. You can find our whole back catalog there. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and anywhere else you find podcasts via RSS. Back in two weeks with another episode. We release them alternating Fridays. Follow Pack on Twitter at PACPA. We're on Facebook too. And our website, one more time, is PECPA.org. For the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening. Music